morning again. So good to be back with you. And uh, I'm really excited that Ian has the opportunity to go and speak at another church uh, this morning um, just to uh, allow them to be uh, blessed by his, his message because he's a good preacher <laughs> and a good pastor. Well, let's pray as we go to the word and we will be in Romans chapter 12 again today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the word that you have given us that soothes our souls. We pray, Father, this morning that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, heart that would receive, hands and feet, Lord God, that would put to good work the words that we encounter today. We pray, Father, that you would convict us where we need convicting, comforting where we need comfort but in all things that we may glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's interesting that Ian mentioned the voice of the martyrs and uh, the magazines and the prayer journals and all the things that you can get from them. My wife and I have been part of that ministry for many, many years, and so I would highly recommend if you don't know anything about that ministry that you would pursue it and, and look at it. It really is an eye-opener to see what our brothers and sisters are enduring in other countries that don't have the freedoms that we have, freedoms, I might add, that are being quickly taken away from us. And so we have a lot to learn from those who are being persecuted and how they react to that persecution. And I think today's message is a little ap is more apropos in that because we would uh, probably react a little bit differently toward our persecutors as, as Americans who are focused on our own rights rather than our responsibilities. And um, it's a Romans 12, and especially the verses that we're going to cover today, really address that quite directly. And so if you were here a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, I uh, alluded to a question that I was going to answer for you today. So let me begin by asking you a serious question to lead into this. Do you think that Jesus was a doormat? Do you think he was a doormat? Now, as I mentioned last time I was here, someone once asked me this provocative question where is the line between being a doormat and being like Christ? And I'd often pondered and prayed about that question. And in that moment, God gave me an answer for that person, for him, the, the answer I'd been looking for for years. And I told you last time that I would give it to you today. The problem is, I think that I may have set myself up. Because now you're probably expecting some mind-altering, heart-staggering, never-before-heard-of response of profound significance oozing with unmatched wisdom, right? But I've come to accept the fact that you may well be disappointed. Yet before I give you my answer, I want to tell you a story, an incomprehensible story, a story I encountered in a book by the title Hidden in Plain Sight by author and pastor Mark Buchanan, who pastored a church in Vancouver for many years. He writes, Gordon is from Canada and his wife, Regine, originally from Rwanda. And she survived barely the genocide of 1994. She lost many loved ones in that Holocaust, those who were easy for her to love, 
family members, friends, and for seven, several months, she was a fugitive in her own land. She scavenged, hidden shadows, slept in caves, and she was running, always running. Finally, she got out, and she came to Canada as a refugee, and she met Gordon, and they fell in love, and they married. And then, breathtaking as it all could seem, they went back to her homeland in Rwanda. She returned not to take vengeance, but to help others heal. Regine became a Christian during the genocide when all she had was her sister's Bible. And that Bible was bread and water and air to her. And through it, she met Jesus, the agape lover. And she met the one who claimed her and healed her by his love and then gave her and her husband Gordon a commission Freely give what you have freely received. Love as I have loved you. In a recent letter, he writes, her brother, Innocent, summed up just how costly such love is. Innocent is now a schoolteacher in Rwanda. It wasn't long ago these children's parents were wielding clubs and machetes, slaughtering neighbors without mercy. It's hard, Innocent wrote, to love the children of those who tried to kill you. But he does, and Regine does. And they have discovered a peace and joy in Christ that is not from this world, it overcomes the world. Christ pours into them his agape love and then draws out of them unprovoked love. Like the story Regine told me one day, and her voice was very quiet as she related it, light and musical, as though she was merely recounting a recent family vacation. She said a woman's only son was killed, and she was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal to me my son's killer. And one night, she dreamed she was going to heaven. But there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter the house through the front door, go through its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back door. This is her dream. And she asked God whose house this was. It's the house, she felt God saying, of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. This is not a dream anymore. This is real. She opened the door, and there stood a young man. He was about her son's age. Yes, she said, and he hesitated. And then he said, I am the one who killed your son. Since that day, I have had no life, no peace, and so here I am. And I am placing my life in your hands. Kill me, because I'm already dead. Throw me in jail, because I'm in prison already. Torture me, because I'm in torment already. Do with me, he said, as you wish. And the woman had prayed for this day, and now it had finally arrived, and she didn't know what to do, and she found to her own surprise that she did not want to kill him or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found that she only wanted one thing, a son. I ask this of you, she said to him, Come into my home and live with me. Eat 
the food that I would have prepared for my son, wear the clothes I would have made for my son, and you become the son I lost. And so he did. You see, the author writes, agape lovers do what God himself has done. Making sons and daughters out of bitter enemies, feeding and clothing them, blazing a trail to heaven straight through their houses. You see, Paul writes, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Know this, friends, that Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He laid down his rights, his right to the throne, his right to wield the same power that called the universe into being. His right to silence his accusers and avenge the severe injustice being done to him. He waived his right to judge, condemn as guilty, and sentence to death all who sinned against him. Rights, mind you, that were well within his authority to enforce. Rights that were well within his reach to impose. He laid them down willingly, graciously, unflinchingly totally and intentionally. So now let me ask you, what do you think? Doormat? Where is the line between being a doormat and being like Christ? Outwardly, the two could look almost identical. If you love your enemy, bless those that persecute you and do not curse them. If you pray for them, submit to them. And if you attempt, so far as it depends on you, to be at peace with them. If you feed them, give them a drink and lend to them. If when they backhand you on your right cheek, you turn to them your left. If when they sue you and take your shirt, you give them your coat as well. If when they force you to go a mile with them and beyond everyone's wildest imagination, you go with them too. If they slander you as evildoers and you persist in living a moral and ethical life before them anyway. If your husband isn't being a follower, living as a follower of Christ, and yet you continue to honor your marriage before the Lord by being respectful and not resentful. If your wife goes astray and you go after her in an attempt to be reconciled and restored because she is your wife by covenant. If you serve the ungrateful, help the uncaring, embrace the unlovable, and if you continue to forgive people when they sin against you five or six or seven or 70 times seven. In one day, if you finally land in the hospital or even in the grave because you worked toward peace, I guarantee you people will raise their eyebrows, regard you as weak, think of you as pathetic, talk about you behind your back, roll your, their eyes at the mention of your name, and these are your so-called friends and family. You will be mocked, made fun of, used, 
abused and forsaken, if you do all of these things, make no mistake about it, you will look like a doormat. But you will be far from one. And you will be in good company. For such was the life of the Lamb of God, who was led to slaughter and did not open his mouth. So where is the line between being a doormat and being like Christ? It's more than a line, my friends. It's a great divide. There's a grand canyon of difference. The difference between being a doormat and being like Christ is defined by what is going on in you as opposed to what is being done to you. That's the answer, simple as it may be. It's defined by what's going on inside of you as opposed to what's being done to you. Doormats allow themselves to be walked on because they are driven by timidity, fear, and a lack of inner trust and security in God. They feel out of control and powerless, but in becoming like Christ, however, you may allow yourself to be walked on by others, but it will be the result of something far different. It will be the result of great strength, which is the opposite of timidity. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. It will be the result of great love, which is the opposite of fear. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. And it will be the result of great trust, which is the opposite of insecurity, Trust in the one who is over all things and who will judge all things righteously. That is how Jesus was able to endure the harsh treatment that he received because what was happening in him outweighed, far outweighed, what was happening to him. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 20, Peter writes, If you suffer for doing what is right and are patient beneath the blows... God is pleased with you. This suffering is all part of what God has called you to. Because Christ, who suffered for you, is your example. Follow in his steps. He never sinned and he never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges righteously. He personally carried away our sins in his own body on the cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You see, the manner in which Jesus lived out the events uh, comprising the last week of his life paint the picture of all that Paul outlines in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. I'm going to read these verses to you now, and I want you to picture Christ fulfilling them. Verse 17, Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, Jesus refused to retaliate when he was wronged. He resolved to reflect what was right. He was resigned to restore relationships through peace. He, for his part, was at peace with all men, yet even in the face of the harshest opposition, he chose peace. He chose to submit himself, as I referenced last time, even to the worst of these, and it cost him. It cost him dearly. And my friends, if we are going to be like Christ, it's going to cost us dearly. Peacemaking is costly business. People will take advantage of you. They will exploit your good heart. They will use you and then they will turn on you and then they will emotionally crucify you. And you will look like a doormat to the world and sometimes to the church and maybe even to everyone around you as well. But when you know you, but, but when, when that happens, you know you have the power of Christ when you know you have his power raging in your soul and you are entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously. Who cares what everybody else thinks? You're not being driven by timidity or fear or insecurity. You are being compelled and controlled by love. Love that is without hypocrisy, the love of Christ himself. And that makes all the difference in the world, and it makes all the difference to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, Whatever we do... It is because Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for everyone, we also believe that we have all died to the old life we used to live. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new, his new life will no longer live to please themselves. Instead, they will live to please Christ who died and was raised for them. This kind of love... This kind of agape love can be best described in one author's words, as I alluded to last time, as unprovoked love. I like that definition of agape love, unprovoked love. It means it happens just because, not just because of. But as that same author explains, the one who coined that term, unprovoked love, he says that's only half true. In God, it is unprovoked. He loves us because he is love. But in us, it is provoked in a way by God. It sparks it. He fuels it. He stokes it. This is love, John says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Paul says the love of Christ compels us in 2 Corinthians 5.14. You see, there are some ways... We will never become agape lovers. And these are the ways that we will never get there. We won't get there by trying harder. We won't get there by reading more books. 
We won't get there by honing up on our technique. We won't get there by feeding our guilt, and we certainly won't get there through fear. Fear has to do with judgment. Fear has to do with the sense that I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'm not loved enough. If you knew me, you'd reject me. And when we fear that way, we become evasive and defensive and aggressive. We want to settle scores. We're easily threatened. We're open prey to envy and pride and greed. We spend inordinate amounts of time trying to manipulate other people's perception of us, don't we? But the more you realize how high and how deep and how wide the love of God is for you, yes, you, the less you fear. Because love casts out fear. That love, God's agape love for you, is the only thing that can provoke agape love in us toward others, and especially toward others who persecute us, toward the worst of these. And we show that not only by what I outlined last time, by refusing to retaliate when wronged, by resolving to reflect what is right, by resigning ourselves to restore relationships through peace, but also by personally relinquishing revenge to God, leaving it to God. Relinquish your revenge. Verse 19 and 20. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, these seem so counterintuitive, these verses. The word for revenge here means securing your rights or avenging yourself. What Paul advocates here strikes right at the heart of everything we have been taught to believe in our culture, doesn't it? It dismantles the basic storyline of every diehard movie and every Jason Bourne movie going. We don't do revenge as Christians. We relinquish it to the one who will do far beyond what we can ever imagine or think. Be assured, my friends, that no sinner will escape justice. God will repay evil. Look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. You see, vengeance belongs to God. And there will be a day of reckoning, amen? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 say this, In his justice he will pay back those who persecute you, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted, and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. See, the Bible is very clear on the reliability of God's justice. Nahum, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and furiously destroys his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. Let me repeat that for you. The Lord is slow to anger, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. And you know what our problem is? Our problem is that when we are wronged, is that the lowest Lord, the Lord is slow to anger. Anger, doesn't that get you? Don't you want God to act right away when you're being hurt? We don't like the fact that God is long-suffering and slow to anger when we're the recipient of the persecution. We don't mind it when it has to do with us, however. When we sin, we are thankful that God is slow to anger. But when it has to do with our enemy, not so much. Let me ask you a question. Do you question the justice of God? It's easy to do right now with all the stuff going on in the Middle East. You, you wonder what's going on. Personally, what just happened in Auburn, uh, uh, Lewiston, which was right down the road from my wife and I, you know what I'm talking about, right? You sit back and you go, how can this happen to these people? Do you question the justice of God? Are you waiting for a little payback for the things that you've suffered possibly? Well, you're in good company because many others, centuries before you, for much greater reasons than you and I, have longed for God to avenge their pain. But my question is, will we want to avenge it ourselves, is do we really think we have the power to do it correctly? Take some time and read the book of Habakkuk this week, or Psalm 94. Meditate on some of those verses. Psalm 37, verses 1 to 3 says this, Do not fret when wicked men seem to succeed. Do not envy evildoers, for they will quickly dry up like grass and wither away like plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. Settle in the land and maintain your integrity. See, only God can and will right the wrongs done in this world. God will. He executes perfect justice where we cannot do that. We mess it all up and we get caught up in our inflamed personal anger. God is the only one who is perfect enough to punish without striking out in spite or personal vindictiveness. He gets no satisfaction in inflicting wrath. The scripture says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? He gets no satisfaction in that. We all have to admit that there are times when we probably would get satisfaction into seeing our enemies. The vengeance of God fall on them. We can take two courses of action when we are unjustly treated. We can step up and fight back. That's the prideful response. Or we can stand down and let God fight. I think what, what Paul's getting at here in these verses on a personal level is that we need to leave the judgment to God. Because he's not going to botch it up like we would. He won't be too lenient, and he won't be too harsh. Uh, J.B. Phillips, 
translates verse 19 this way. He says, never take vengeance into your own hands, my dear friends. Stand back and let God punish if he will. And the classic example of this principle is David's refusal to kill Saul on two different occasions when it seemed as though God had delivered Saul into David's hands. You remember those situations? One of them is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. You probably remember the situation. Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, but he was told David in the wilderness of En Gedi, Saul took 3,000 chosen men from Israel, went to seek David and his men to the front of the rocks of the wild goats, and he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself, and now David and his men were sitting in the deep recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Look, God's giving Saul into your hands. Rise up now and take your vengeance. Basically, do to him what seems good to you. Take him out. And so David rose up and he went and what did he do? He cut off the edge of his robe, right? So he said to his men, David did, he said, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. And now David, verse 8 says, Afterward David arose, went out of the cave, and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Look at verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see indeed the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil and rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. Note those words. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. The same thing happened again in chapter 26. Chapter 26, I'm going to read just one verse. David said, as the Lord lives, Lord, the, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into battle and perish and the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. On two occasions, God made it available for David to take his revenge out on Saul, but he didn't do it. He left it for God to do. When asked how a man could best injure his enemy, the first century philosopher Epictetus replied in these words, he said, by living the best life himself. That's how you can take revenge on your enemies, by living the best life yourself. Our motive, however, is not to bring injury to our enemy, but rather to do what is right in the sight of God, amen? 
We don't take vengeance by acting right. We just act right and leave the vengeance to God. So how are we to act if we relinquish revenge to God? What should we do instead? Well, back in Romans 12, in verse 20, Paul says very practically, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. It's all counterintuitive. Feed him, Paul says. Literally, it means to feed with morsels. In other words, we ought to be spoon-feeding the opposition with tender care. That word was used of, a, of Greek nurses who used to first chew up the food and then feed it to the infants because they didn't have food grinders back then, right? So basically what's Paul saying here? He's saying if your enemy is hungry, feed him with the tender care that a nurse would an infant. When we actively show love toward an enemy, that in itself might shock the person into shame. If we claim to be Christ's followers, then we should act like Christ acted. He loved us even while we were yet sinners, and he gave his life for our forgiveness. Not when we were his friends. When we were his enemies. Promises that if we forgive our enemies the way Christ forgave us, we will heap burning coals on his head, according to verse 20. Now, this is a very difficult passage to explain. You're probably all sitting there wondering, what does that mean to heap burning coals upon his head? Well, you're in good company. I'll tell you that right now, because... This is a very difficult passage to explain. There have been many suggested meanings. One explanation speaks of a practice in ancient Egypt where a man would carry a pan of burning coals on his head to demonstrate his public shame and repentant heart. It represented his burning pain of shame and guilt. But it's difficult to find any real tangible examples of that meaning in early literature. Another interpretation says that the expression represents an act of kindness by meeting a person's need. Someone else suggested that it's really an act of judgment upon a person. Whatever the meaning, this quotation from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, that's where it comes from. The point Paul is making is that by showing kindness to an enemy, no matter how hostile they may become, will ultimately shame him and possibly soften his heart or... God will pronounce judgment on that person if they refuse to repent. To refuse to retaliate and relinquish revenge to God is distinctively Christian. And by the way, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. You need to have the grace of God poured into your life and into your soul in order to accomplish this. It's the only way it's ever going to happen. You need to wait on God to do this in you. But this action is 180 degrees left of what the world would tell you to do. Our society expects retaliation when people have wronged each other. But to show love and kindness in the face of wrong not only blows minds, but it melts hearts. One man put the principle in very clear words. He said, we are not to consider what others deserve to suffer, but what we are required to do. 
An old English proverb says that the noblest vengeance is to forgive. And that is how we will gain the win. We will overcome by refusing to retaliate when wronged, by resolving to reflect what's right, by resigning ourselves to restore relationships through peace, by relinquishing vengeance to its rightful owner, God, and but finally and ultimately, we will develop our credibility as Christ followers by personally reversing our response to evil. That's verse 21. And it doesn't need much explanation. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So reverse your response. I'm convinced that this idea of overcoming evil with good could never really have taken root in men and women until the gospel was preached. The principle could never have really been given reality until Jesus Christ epitomized it. He came, he served, he bled, he died, he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father for all of us, even in the midst of a world that hated him and hates him still. He overcame our evil with his good. And then he called us to faith and looked us in the eyes, spiritually speaking, and he said simply and authoritatively, follow me. Follow me. You see, no human government, no man-made philosophy, no scientific formula could ever or will ever accomplish what any spiritual, a spirit-filled child of God can accomplish through this principle of life. Friends, we need to know that no conversion of any nation or individual will ever be possible until we resolve to act on the principle that to overcome evil is only going to happen with the good. Our credibility as Christians depend on it. William Arthur Ward once said, raised voices lower self-esteem. Hot tempers cool friendships. Loose tongues stretch the truth. Swelled heads shrink influence. And sharp words dull respect. Jesus says, and Paul affirms, that it is death to self that brings life to others. So how are you coping with your hurts? Your bitterness? How are you responding to those who mistreat you or are hateful toward you? Is your hate offering any healing to you? Has resentment brought you any relief whatsoever? Has your vengeance brought your soul victory? Imagine yourself right now standing over the corpse of the one with whom you are so bitterly at odds. And then ask, I ask you this question, will you finally be free? Will you be free? Let me close with this. I'm reminded of a young man was having a significant ministry in a small English village many years ago. I encountered this story some time ago. The people were coming from miles around to hear him teach the scriptures. In his mid-twenties, he had a voracious appetite for not only teaching the scriptures, but also knowing them as well. And he was making an impact on that village 
and the surrounding area until the charges were made. A young woman came forward and claimed that he had tried to force himself upon her sexually. The word spread like wildfire across the countryside and he was finished. The sentiments of the people were with the young girl and his reputation was absolutely in shambles. But the problem was, well, good for him, but it was all a lie. It never happened. And the young man struggled deeply with the betrayal of the young woman whom he had legitimately tried to help spiritually. But she had turned on him and was in the process of ruining his ministry for life. He thought he would never recover from that. How could he ever minister anywhere ever again with such charges looming over his head? Bitterness just about overwhelmed him. But the betrayal was too much. He couldn't bear it and he couldn't undo it. But with God's help, he refused to allow that bitterness to take root in his heart. God enabled him to conquer the bitterness just as Joseph had conquered his in the Old Testament. The falsely accused young man thought that he would never again be used by God, but there are millions and millions of people who can vouch for the fact that Oswald Chambers was greatly used by God before it was all over. To this day, his book, My Utmost for His Highest, tops the Christian bestseller list. Oswald Chambers struggled with betrayal, with bitterness, with false accusation and unfair treatment and unfounded suspicion, yet he did not repay evil for evil. He overcame evil with good. So let me ask you as I close, what do you think? Doormat or Christ-like? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, some words in your scripture are so hard to accept. And this passage of, of scripture is one of them. We, we recognize the fact, Lord Jesus, that you lived them out perfectly before us as you went to the cross and you overcame evil with good. Our Father, I pray for your spirit to help us, Lord God, when we face circumstances in our lives that cause us to apply these principles. It might not be as bad as taking vengeance on someone who murdered one of our children. It might just be a passing word, Lord God, that denigrates us or betrays us. Regardless of what it is, Lord God, the principles are the same, and we need your spirit to help us. So help us love as you love. Help us forgive as you forgive. Be our strength. Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go to communion, as Kevin comes up, I just want to uh, to make a plug for a book. We're talking about persecuted, the persecuted church today. I was going to read an excerpt from this, but given the time, I won't do it. But the book, The Insanity of God, it's a true story of faith resurrected by Nick Ripkin. If you want to learn about how the persecuted church responds and what they ask of us as their brothers and sisters in Christ, 
This book will open your eyes to the persecution that some believers undergo like nothing I've ever read before. And you know, the people here that are, that this man and his wife spent 20 years going all around the world visiting the most incredibly persecuted churches and underground churches there were to write this book. Personal testimonies in there. And the people that he writes about fulfill the verses that I just preached about for the letter. So highly recommend it. If you want more information, I'm happy to talk to you about it later. Thank you, Russ. As we uh, go into our time of uh, communion,